0: thought I'd start by telling you a story of, about my, my mother. Um, she passed away 12 years ago, and she passed away on my brother's 40th birthday, on the 29th of February. My youngest brother is a leap year baby, and it was the 29th of February, and she passed away on his 40th birthday, which was quite a thing for him to um, come to terms with, but that's just kind of what happened. And she passed away from quite a rare form of lung cancer. She never, she never smoked a cigarette in her life. Um, but she, she died over a period of two years. One of the things that my mum gave herself to uh, over the course of her life was she was very compassionate about people that had disabilities. And that was because her brother, my uncle, he um, suffered uh, oxygen de- deprivation when he was born. And so he was a cerebral palsy um, person. He had, he had that challenge all of his life. And one of the things that she did during the course of her life, she was a teacher. She, sp- she taught at a, a school for disabled people and a lot of people at the school obviously had cerebral palsy or they were deaf or they had challenges like um, uh, polio challenges and various other things. And she gave much of her life to um, serving those that were vulnerable. And it just got me thinking a little bit, because when I grew up, I remember seeing lots of people, young children in Africa, wearing, wearing uh, braces for their legs because they had suffered polio. How many of you have seen anyone in braces on their legs? Yeah? Okay. Have you seen anyone recently? Anyone young? There's a reason for that. It's because there was a polio vaccination, which has now just become an oral uh, drop of tablets that you take which protects you from polio. And so I want to encourage you, I'm I'm going to go and get my vaccination this week. And um, when you get an opportunity to get a vaccination, I want to encourage you to take the opportunity to get a vaccination, not just for your sake, but for the sake of others. And so I'm going this week to get my vaccination, but I'm getting it primarily for people like Carol, who's probably watching online. I'm getting my vaccination this week because of Andrew. Andrew. Carrie. and I'm getting my vaccination this week because of Chris and people like that who are most vulnerable, and I can do my little bit by not passing on the, something to some other people who I love. And because I want Carol to be part of this church community, and to, she hasn't been able to worship with us for a year, nor is Andrew. He's played guitar on our, um, on our, our recordings, which is a brilliant thing. But I want to see him leading worship again, don't you? And so what can we do? Well, we can do our bit. And what we can do is make sure that we don't pass on something that is going to harm anyone else. So I want to encourage you uh, that when you get an opportunity, that you do that. And let's think of others. You know, our Western culture says that we are the most important people in the world, and our individual rights are the most important thing for us to guard That's true to a degree, but the Bible never just speaks about individuals. The Bible always speaks about family, community, nations, peoples. The Bible always is other-centered. It's not just centered on yourself. So I want to encourage you, think of other people as we go forward together. All right? Amen? Okay. So, I'm going to continue in our series uh, in Mark this morning, and um, I'm going to talk to you this morning about the arrest of Jesus and his betrayal by his closest friends, and then also look briefly at the trial that he has before the Sanhedrin. So, it's quite a chunky portion, and I'm going to make some comments about the first section. Around his trial and arrest, uh, sorry, his um, betrayal and arrest, and then it's some comments about the, the trial before the Sanhedrin. So if you're following, uh, is it going to come up on, on screen? I, I know it was a lot of slides this week because it's a chunky period, uh, a, a chunky piece of, uh, of scripture. But it's Mark 14, verse 43 to 65. And we're going to read together. It says this. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And then they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony did not agree. And when the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? Was it, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, prophesy. And the gods received him with blows. So here we, we're looking at the last couple of days of, of Jesus' life, which um, are increasingly filled with this intense suffering that he endures uh, in these last moments of his life. And last week, uh, Mike spoke, spoke brilliantly about um, Peter and his rash promise that he would never deny Jesus and uh, Jesus' response to him that is recorded in the Gospel of John. So if you, if you didn't get that, please, um, please uh, catch up on podcast or on YouTube um, and uh, hear what Michael had to say. He, he really did an amazing job. Oh, you know, I've forgotten something which is very important. Can I just interrupt myself? <laughs> I promised I'd tell you. When it happens. I remember we've been uh, looking at getting the roof repaired upstairs in the, in the um, kids' rooms. We, uh, this week, our right shield have agreed to st- start work, and they'll start work at the end of um, April, uh, hopefully during April, to repair the roof. So thank you again for your generosity to make that happen. So kids, when you go up there next time, it should be warm, and it should be dry. Hallelujah. So great. So our text today, this morning, is playing out against the backdrop of um, the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, and it kind of accelerates the sense of abandonment in Jesus' life as one by one, people start to abandon Him, and now His closest friends start to abandon Him. And you remember, He goes to the garden after, after the, the, the supper that He shares with His disciples, and I imagine, I don't know if you ever have tried to process something in your life But I've often wondered why the Scripture records that he does it three times. He goes away to pray and asks his disciples to keep watch. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And I guess it's because he's trying to process emotionally what he knows is going to happen and what's going to come for him on the cross. And so he goes away and comes back again to get some courage from his disciples. And he goes away again. It happens three times. And as you know... They fall asleep and he has to wake them and say, guys, can't you just keep watch with me for an hour and pray? And so he's processing this emotional um, thing that's going to happen as he anticipates the cross. And so on the third time, when he, when he, um, he comes back to his disciples to, to arrest Jesus, and we know that um, rabbis were tr- traditionally greeted by their students with a kiss. So you know the French. If you go to if you go to France and you meet anyone in a French family, they'll kiss you on the cheek. And the first time it happened to me, it was a young man in his twenties in a church in Annecy, and he hadn't shaved, and I kind of felt the kind of bristle on my chin for the first time. And I thought I had some sympathy for Helen, uh, what she goes through. But I, I I felt for the first time what it was like to get a um, A kiss on my cheek. But that was was a traditional way that rabbis would be greeted by the students. Now, the word here, when uh, Judas says, the one I will kiss is the man, the Greek word used there is philion, which simply is an ordinary word. But when it says uh, Judas went at once saying rabbi and kissed him, the word there is kataphilion, which is an intensive word, which has an implication that the kiss was prolonged and the kiss was shifting and there was a sign being given that this was not just a formal greeting, but this was the greeting given to a friend. And that perhaps is the most horrific thing about the whole story, is that Judas goes to Jesus and doesn't just kiss him in a formal way as a student would kiss a rabbi. He kisses him as a friend, you would greet a friend. And so here we have this betrayal happening at the hand of a friend. I think that's probably what makes it most awful. And uh, the small group of people tries to take Jesus away once he's been identified. And um, Michael spoke of Peter's violent outburst and cuts um, the ear off of one of those who'd come to arrest Jesus. But in all of this, do you notice that Jesus seems to be at peace and acts in a serene way? And for me, as I was thinking about it this, this week, the battle had already been won in the garden. The emotional wrestling through what was going to ha- happen had already been won for Jesus in the garden. And so when the people come and he knows it's going to happen, he is, he's completely at peace with himself and with God, and he acts like a man that is know, knows that his father has got everything under control. And so he acts in this kind of very peaceful way as these people come to arrest him, and um, he... He challenges the use of force, but he does it in a nice way. He says, um, he says have you come like you're arresting a robber? Uh, other translations say, am I leading a rebellion that you come with So says, you know, I was amongst you all the time in the temple. Day by day, you could have come at any time, and yet you choose now to come and arm yourselves with clubs to arrest me. And um, there's a little verse there that says, and he said all of this, to fulfill Scripture. And so scholars have wondered um, what Jesus might have been thinking about when he said, well, this is what you're doing right now is just to fulfill Scripture. And people think something like Psalm 41 verse 9, which says this, even my close friends, someone that I trusted, the one who shared my bread has turned against me. I can see you all shivering. So it should come back on. So perhaps Jesus was thinking of Psalm when he, when he alluded to that. Or other scholars have said perhaps it was Zechariah 13, 7, which says, Awake my sword against the shepherd, against the man who's close to me. Perhaps, perhaps that's what Jesus was thinking about. And then in verse 50, there's this rather odd addition. Did you notice that little odd addition in which it talks about a young man who flees and leaves his clothes behind? Right? <laughs> And that doesn't really make sense at all unless that person was a personal witness to what happened. And so why is this incident so so interesting to Mark? Well, um, most probable answer is that the young man was Mark himself. He was the young man that fled. And why do I say that? Well, in the book of Acts, Acts 12, 12, we know that the early church gathered regularly in the house of John Mark. Mary was his mother, and John Mark was a teenager. He was a young man. And so some people think, some scholars think, that the last supper, the last meal, happened in John Mark's house, in Mary's house. Some people think that's probably what happened. And so it's quite likely that if John Mark was asleep, and they got news back from the garden that actually Jesus was being betrayed, John Mark is a young man, not thinking very clearly, just put on one robe, not his under robe, he just put on one robe, his bath, he's kind of like, you know, your dressing gown, and he ran to the garden to see what was happening to Jesus. And it says there that um, they grab him and arrest him, and to get away, he kind of literally leaves his clothes behind and flees. And so, most people, scholars say, they think that actually John Mark there is, Mark is speaking about himself and he's letting us know that actually he was an eyewitness to those events and he was there himself. That's his way of doing it. So, those are the kind of two little things I wanted to draw out of the first section. Just the sense of this onward, this uh, um, spiral, downward spiral of betrayal as Jesus gets rejected by his closest friends one by one. Because in verse 50, it says also, I think it's verse 50, it says, they all fled. Do you notice that? So Judas was the one that betrayed him, and then all of the disciples fled when the crowd came to arrest Jesus. So I'd like to just now look at the second section from verse 53, just at this um, trial before the Sanhedrin, and uh, take some things out of those. Verses to apply to our lives. And this is the wonderful thing about Jesus is that the scripture says he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he himself has endured all things. And so I want to show you a couple of things. And if any of these things have happened to you in your life, take heart because Jesus has experienced them too. First thing I'd like you to notice is this. First of all, do you notice that in those last verses, The hatred and the animosity that Jesus experienced didn't come from the common people, but it came from the nominal church. It came from the nominal church, and I use those words purposefully. It's good to remind ourselves at this state of events that those that are showing the most hatred to Jesus are the religious people. It says there that a group is sent from the high priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders, three groups. Now, the high priests and the teachers of the law were the religious elite that made up the Sanhedrin, and then the elders were respected people within the Jewish community, and all of those groups sent these people to uh, arrest Jesus. So, in other words, the theologians, the scholars, the scribes, they had plotted for this moment, and they had planned for this moment, and now they're acting on their plans. And it's interesting that the Sanhedrin, they had full power over all religious matters for, for the Jewish people, and they also had a certain amount of power of the like a police force or court power, but they didn't have the power to inflict the death penalty on anybody. So if this meeting that we read of here is effectively a meeting of the Sanhedrin, their function wasn't to condemn anyone. Their function was to get the accused ready so that they could appear before the Roman governor and face a legal trial. So that should have been their role. And so I just want to point out right at the outset that this is not this is not ordinary people. This is the elite, the religious, scholarly elite that have done this and plouted for this, and it's good to think about that and reflect on that. And it's it can be just to apply to our lives. You know, it can be especially painful in our lives when We see that the very people that should be open to hearing from God, that should be open to hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, are the ones that oppose Him and hate Him the most. And sometimes it is like that. And Jesus understood what it felt like to be resisted to by religious people that didn't really have the heart of the Father, but were motivated by legalistic, moralistic religion. Secondly, you notice from those portions that Jesus understands what it's like to face slander and to face invented stories. It says in verse 50, 55 that they were looking for evidence to charge him. And I've got no doubt, as, as I've read this this week, that um, in all of their formal uh, legal practice, the Sanhedrin broke all of their own rules. And why do I say that? Well, I can't, for the sake of time, right, right now go into a whole lot of detail, except to say that the Sanhedrin was a court that uh, was comprised of 71 members, made up of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and they were all people from various parts of of Jewish community. The court was presided over by the high priest, and they had their own building within the temple precinct which they met. and Any decision that the Sanhedrin arrived at had to be made in that building. The court could not legally sit at night. It could not legally sit during any of the major festivals that Jewish people celebrated. When evidence was given, each witness had to be examined separately. The evidence had to be corroborated and uh, agreed upon. And then each member of the Sanhedrin individually was to give their verdict starting with the youngest and moving up to the oldest, 71 members individually giving their verdict on the evidence that they had heard. If the, the, the sentence that they thought was uh, to be given was a serious sentence, a whole day and night had to elapse between the trial and the implementation of the sentence so that the court could think about it and they could perhaps be merciful and move towards clemency. This was, we know this, this is how the Sanhedrin was supposed to work. And so we can see in Jesus' trial, they break all their own rules. They're not meeting in the building, in the temple. The court was meeting at night when it shouldn't have been. It was in the middle of the, the, the Passover feast, which was a ma- ma- major festival. There's no There's no um, uh, corroboration from Mark's account that any of the evidence was considered individually. Certainly, none none of the members spoke out individually. There was no time period between what they said they were going to do and meeting out a penalty. In all of what they did, it was completely illegal according to their own court. And we see that it says they couldn't even corroborate the evidence against Jesus. And in our modern kind of courts of law, you're innocent until proven guilty. Isn't that true? But here we have a situation where Jesus is innocent, but he's being made to look guilty regardless of the facts of the matter. Or perhaps you've been through something similar in your life. Perhaps at some time in your life, someone out of sheer jealousy or malice or ambition is determined to get you and to make a case against you regardless of, of the facts. They want you out of the picture. They want you out of the way. And they'll stop at nothing to do that. And so they manufacture evidence or twist the truth to make sure that you're found guilty for something that you didn't do. Have you ever experienced something like that? I have in my life. Well, if you have, <laughs> I just want to say this to you. Uh, I, I, it pains me that you've had to ever go through something like that. But take heart because Jesus understands exactly what you've been through, because he's been through it himself. That's what the Scripture says. And so Jesus can identify when false accusation has been brought against us, uh, just as false accusation was brought against him. Thirdly, do you notice that Jesus knows what it's like to have the facts twisted Jesus didn't say, I will destroy the temple. The Pharisees say, Jesus said, with my hands I will destroy this temple and three days I will build again. That's not true. Why well, do not know that? Because if you read John's account, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says this when he challenges the Pharisees. He says, the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're challenging his authority. And then Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's not talking about the temple, he's talking about his body. And that's what the disciples realized. The Jews Jews reply, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. And verse 21 says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead. The disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Sometimes the facts are twisted. Have you ever been in a situation in your life when someone says something that's true or only partially true and they twist it to make you look like you are in the wrong? Have you ever experienced that before? If you have, take heart. (laughs) Jesus knows exactly what you've been through because he's been through it himself. Fourthly, I'm nearly done. But, you know, if it's really freezing, just close the doors, please. I've tried to switch the heating on. I don't know why it hasn't come back on. But feel free to close the doors. Fourthly, Jesus was illegally forced into giving testimony against himself. You notice the high priest tries to incriminate Jesus. Um, we've already, I've already tried to show you that given the history of Jewish law, it's highly unlikely that any sentence passed in the middle of the night Uh, would be valid, especially if you put a a witness under pressure that would incriminate themselves. But the high priest tries to force Jesus to say whether he claimed to be the Messiah. We see that in verse 60 and 61. And here I would point, you know, I've heard people say, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God and he never claimed to be the Messiah. Can I just respectfully say that if you've ever heard someone uh, say that to you, you can tell them absolutely that they're wrong and do it lovingly and point them to Mark. Here of verse chapter 14, verse 60, because Jesus clearly claims Messiahship in these verses. He says it outright. He claims to be the messianic king of Daniel 7.13. Now, if you remember when we talked about the prophecies of um, the, the temple being destroyed in the previous chapters, I spent a long time talking about Daniel 7.13. And here again, Jesus quotes in his answer, he quotes Daniel 7.13. With the clouds of heaven. there comes one like a son of man, and he comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him, and to to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Jesus is quoting Daniel 7.13 again, and this is not speaking about the second coming. It's speaking about things that are going to happen immediately. It's speaking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the bold testimony of the apostles and the fall of Jerusalem. And the destruction of the temple. And all of these things, Jesus is saying, all of these things are pointing to the fact that He is the Son of Man who is coming to the Father. And as He comes to the Father, He receives the kingdom from the Father. And the kingdom is of power and of dominion. And His kingdom is of peace and a reign of justice and joy that will know no end. That's what Jesus is claiming when He says those words. He is saying, I am the Son. I am Messiah. This is my kingdom, and I'm coming right now to my Father, and in this moment, He gives me this kingdom, which will know no end. Jesus claimed Messiahship. And of course, Pharisees cry, blasphemy. They say, why do we need any more evidence? This man is guilty of blasphemy. But the backdrop of that is a hurried trial in the middle of the night, which should never have taken place legally. Fifthly, and I'm closing with these things. Do you notice that Jesus knows what it's like to face physical violence? Any of you faced physical violence? The threat of violence I have in my life. It's a terrible thing when someone comes to beat you or bully you or physically hit you. Have you ever experienced something like that? I grew up in boarding school. I know what it's like to be bullied like that and to be hit by the people. Jesus knows what it's like to face physical violence. And here we see the worst thing of all in all of this is that it's the theologians. It's the religious people who understand the Mosaic law, and they have everything sorted in their theology, and yet their religion still allows them to beat someone and spit on someone and slap them. That's what religion does. That's why it's so awful. And they say, prophesy. You know, it grieves me this week that we've had another example of a young woman being raped and beaten to death and buried in a body bag. It's absolutely awful. You know what's the worst thing? It happened by the hand of someone she should have been able to trust a policeman. And that's when it becomes even more vile is when we can't trust people that we should be able to trust. And the ones we should be able to trust, they're the very ones doing us harm and doing us damage. It's awful. Well, perhaps that's happened to you. Perhaps you've you've experienced that in your life. And if you've ever known ill treatment or violence at the hand of someone that you should have been able to trust, my heart grieves with you, and I say, so I'm so sorry that you've had to go through there. But I want to encourage you and say, take heart, because Jesus knows your pain, and He knows exactly what you've been through, because He's been through it Himself. And lastly, i finish with this. You know, Jesus, Michael already spoke wonderfully about this, but Jesus knows what it's like to be... To to be disowned by his closest friends. Um, we see Peter around the fire, warming himself around the fire, under pressure from a servant girl, girl um, denies Jesus. And he had that, he's had anything to do with Jesus at all. And uh, Michael wonderfully unpacked that for us last week. And so we see here Jesus put through all of these intense sufferings. But the great promise of the Scripture is that because he suffered in such ways, he is able to help everyone all of us that walk through the same things who are, on, or are under the pressure of temptation Hebrews 12 uh, sorry Hebrews 2:18 says for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help anyone who is being tempted so whether you faced the reality of physical violence or being t- betrayed by people closest to you or your closest friends. You know, I've had, in my life, I've had, have had a number of experiences. When we were going through terrible things in our family, there were people in the church that put the knife in to us personally. <laughs> and I've often wondered about that. I thought when you're on your knees, when you are the lowest of the low, you expect your friends to hold your hands up, don't you? And I've had times when I'm on, I've been on my knees, And someone has come with a knife and whacked it in my back. And that was sore. And yet Jesus says, my son, I'm with you. I know what it's like. Even my closest friends to betray me. And yet my grace is sufficient for you. Perhaps you've known things like that in your life as well. I want to encourage you to take heart. Lift up your eyes to the great king. He knows you. And He knows what you've had to walk through. And He's been there, underpinning you, the everlasting arms of the Father, holding you up, even in your darkest moments. Amen.